You can go ahead and flip to Hebrews 8. We're actually going to be all over the Bible today. Um, but you can go ahead and put your finger and get open to Hebrews 8. Um, that's really kind of where we're going to start. Um, but so on Easter, uh, we, we, we started looking at the new covenant. We've been walking through the covenants, seeing them unfold in front of us, seeing God be, do his work in the world through the covenants. Uh, and on Easter, we got to Luke's gospel, and we looked at Jesus as that initiating, inaugurating person, the, the covenant partner. And, and the point was this. In Christ, God the creator, covenant maker, has provided a faithful covenant partner who serves as our trustworthy covenant representative. So in Christ, God the creator, covenant maker, has provided a faithful covenant partner who serves as our trustworthy covenant representative. We looked at several passages across the book of Luke that showed that Jesus had been born not just to die. You hear that said a lot, right? Like Jesus was born to die. Yeah, that's true. But there's so much more to the reality of that. Jesus was not simply born to die. He was born to live sinlessly, die sacrificially, rise victoriously in order to represent God to us and us to God in a faithful, as a faithful covenant partner. He was inaugurating a new covenant. And last week, we, we picked up on that same thing with the new covenant uh, and we saw that it wasn't a backup plan. This wasn't God's plan like he's reacting because things didn't go the way he anticipated. It wasn't by the skin of his teeth that, that Jesus comes up with this idea, hey, I'm going to rise from the dead. It had always been God's plan. It was always uh, God's plan. God, the creator and covenant maker, promised a new covenant through which he would make his covenant people new. And we kind of did that out of order, but we wanted to focus on Jesus at Easter, right? Like that makes sense, I think. So we're focusing on Jesus at Easter, but, but the promise came well before Jesus was born through the prophet Jeremiah. Isaiah prophesied about this coming covenant. Um, uh, Ezekiel spoke of this coven, coming covenant, covenant. Uh, but, but Jeremiah was probably the most thorough or the clearest statement of it, and he's also the one that is quoted directly uh, at length in the New Testament. So, so it's the most popular place to look at it, but this was a promise. This was always God's plan. God had made this covenant promise through his prophets, he, and then he fulfilled that promise in Jesus's life, death, resurrection. But, but Jesus didn't only fulfill the promise of the new covenant. Jesus didn't just come and establish that new covenant and fulfill that single promise. In Christ, all the promises of God's covenants are fulfilled. He is the fulfillment of every covenant that we've studied to this point. And that's it's demonstrated over and over across the whole New Testament. Um, we're going to start today in Hebrews. That's why I told you to put your finger in Hebrews 8. That's where we're going to be. That's where we're really going to study from. Uh, because really the, the author of Hebrews is really seeking to point and, and show us how the, how the Old Testament, all that God was doing in the Old Testament is always preparing, always pointing, always challenging us to be ready to see Jesus. And so, so we're going to work from that. But why did he do? Why was it such an important thing for him to do this? Well, well we see his purpose in Hebrews, uh, in passages like Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. I think the verse is going to be on the screen behind me. You won't need to look it up, it, but you can go mark it and look at it later. He, he writes, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and even transgression, disobedience, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. He's concerned about these Hebrew Christians, these these Hebrew Christians that fill his audience. He doesn't want them to drift. He doesn't want them to drift away from Christ and the gospel, the the good news of his new covenant. In Hebrews 6.1, he confronts the reality first that they are still drinking milk when they should be eating meat. It's It's imagery speaking to the idea that they should be growing up and maturing. So like when we're babies, we drink milk, right? When we're adults, we eat meat. That's the idea. And he's challenging these Hebrew Christians that they should be mature. And he writes Hebrews 6.1, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So, so the idea is, hey, hey, I don't want you to drift. I want you to keep your eye on Christ. I, I, I don't want you to drift from what he's taught us. But I don't want you to stay at the very beginning and just think that's enough. I want you to grow up and I want you to mature. And so he writes this letter to help us see that and understand that there's so much more than just the simple idea that Jesus hung on a cross, Jesus died, and was buried and rose again. That's true. It's absolutely true. And the reasons for which he did it are absolutely true. But there is a cosmic work that God is doing that if all we look at, It's just the moment in which Christ lived on the earth, the 30 or so years that he walked the earth. We're going to miss the fact that God is working from beginning to end to bring this fallen creation to new creation. He has been working all this time to do this work. Even in passages like Hebrews 12.1, the the author of Hebrews calls these people, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since we're surrounded by people, since we've we've been preceded by people who have trusted this and have believed and who have clung to it, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. I want you not to drift. I want you to look at Jesus. I want you to keep your eye on him. I want you to cling to him. I want you to grow up in maturity in him. And so he writes this letter to help us see how everything God has always been doing has been preparing us and pointing us to Jesus. So let's join them. Right? Like that's the whole purpose of this series that we've been working through. Starting in Revelation, that he's the Alpha and the Omega, the God from beginning to end, going to the creation and seeing his work in creation, not simply to argue whether he did it in six days, whether it was a seven-day week or or whether it was periods of time, not not simply to just have debates around coffee of, of whether it's an old earth or a young earth. But to see God's cosmic work to create, to see his power, to see his glory. And that very beginning moment in which we rebelled against it. But let's move on from milk to meat. Let's let's not drift. Let's keep our eye on Christ. Let's lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. And not the elementary things of Jesus, but the, but the meat that is behind the work of Christ and his cross. The founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him. Let's look to him in his new covenant work. As, and, and see how it's the fulfillment of all God's work. It struck me as I was preparing this. Really, the thing that the author of Hebrews wants and why I'm so moved, even as I think about it now, and just 
concerned. This is exactly what I and the other pastors in this church want for you. I mean, this is why we do what we, this is why we organize and, and show up on Sunday morning and actually don't just come and do it all for you, but actually expect you to be a part. That's why we offer the equipped classes that we do and we say, hey, that's the Bible studies we're going to offer. Sunday morning and equipped classes, that's going to be the schedule because we know what we, we've prayed and thought clearly and, and considered where we are as a church and we're convinced that the Lord has led us to a place to lead you. To know Him better. That's why we choose those classes. So that you can grow in knowing Him. And in serving Him. It's why we organize our ministry. The way we organize. It's why we commit ourselves to community groups. and So, so that it's not just a, a sermon on Sunday morning. Or a time in a building on Sunday morning. That, but that we walk out into the world. And then we involve ourselves deeply in one another's lives. The fellowship that happens here as we shake hands is minuscule compared to what God would have for us in and of his people. But how are we going to know Christ? How are we going to encourage one another, spur one another on to good works? Another verse that the author writes, if we are not together. It strikes me that this, that this purpose for which the author of Hebrews writes is the very purpose for why we're doing what we're doing right now. So I'm answering the so what question that I'm going to ask at the end of this sermon. We are convinced, your pastors are convinced, that you nor I nor anyone else will know the hope and peace and joy and satisfaction that we all long for, except by knowing this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But not just knowing him, and saying, well, that's enough, but always growing to know him more. And not just knowing him, but being satisfied with him over all the other things that compete for our attention, for all the other things that we think, oh, that would be nice, that would be good, that would, that's what I need. Until we have him, until our lives are rooted in him, the things we long for are always just going to be a dream. Just things we long for. Okay. Sorry, I went a little bit further than I intended to, but let's look at Hebrews 8 and see just how Jesus fulfills this work. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if we were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since they were priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to that pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, as it is Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. Uh, my goodness. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming. If you were here last week, you'll recognize this passage immediately. It's from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenants that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds I will, and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And, sh- and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Father, would you be with us now? By your spirit, move on us, challenge us, draw us, help us to see your son, our savior, all over your word. That we would know, (laughs) we would know him and be satisfied with him. And that today, as a result of just knowing him better, maybe more clearly, maybe more fully. Oh, that we would walk and step into a, well, just even greater joy, greater peace, greater hope. And see some of those desires each of us hold, those deep longings. See them met in and through your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, Philip Ryken wrote uh, that the, the history of God's people is a story of covenants. Philip Ryken's a Presbyterian. I don't necessarily agree with everything that this Presbyterian brother has to say about the covenants, but I agree completely with this idea. The history of God's people is a story of covenants. We, we can even see it begin to unfold here that, that this covenant doesn't sit in isolation, that it's connected. That there's, there's ways in which it, it finds connection and continuity with those covenants in the Old Testament. The whole main thrust of the passage is to show that Jesus' covenant is a better covenant built on better promises. Now, the, the idea of being better at least demonstrates a contrast between what was old and what was new, right? Like there's a way in which we can see that there's this contrast, but there's also a connection. There's an immediate connection. It's immediately evident how this passage connects back to Israel's covenant at Mount Sinai. That's the covenant he's referring to as the, the priests and the, and the law and the things that they were doing, the sacrifices, Moses. That's, it's all pointing us right back to that covenant. But how do you study the covenant with Israel that was mediated through Moses without also recognizing that there's a covenant with Abraham? Because who was Israel? They were the immediate fulfillment, the 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 first step of fulfillment in God's promise to Abraham. They were his offspring. Well, okay, so we have to, okay, so to really understand what God's promised Israel, even though it's a distinct covenant, there's there's discontinuity between Abraham's covenant and Israel's covenant, to really understand what he's promising them and what it's founded on, we've got to go back and study Abraham's covenant. But how do we study that covenant without also recognizing that God's made covenants with Noah? And Adam. That God's made promises. And, 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 and when God made those promises to Adam, that he didn't immediately 
destroy the world, but he made more promises. And, and then when people continued to rebel, he makes a promise to preserve a world that, uh, that preserves life until he fulfills his work that he starts with Abraham. You see, we don't even have an Abrahamic covenant if we don't have a Noahic covenant. And the reality is, is that it didn't stop with Israel, did it? Like, it wasn't all done with Israel. And I got it all right and everything worked out. No, we can see clearly something went wrong. And we don't even have to go back there to see it. We see it right here. He's helping us understand it already. Something was off. So as we study the Abrahamic covenant, we don't just look back. We move forward to the the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. But then that moves us forward again to David, who God says, I'm going to fulfill my covenants now, not just through the nation, but through this one man who is a king. See, the reality is, is that without the covenants, we lose the whole storyline of the Bible because the story of God's people is a story of covenants. And with each successive covenant, we, we, we see we get closer to their fulfillment and the promises get more specific and there's a little bit more revelation about what God's doing. And this covenant fulfillment is central to the whole theme of the Bible. It's central to the whole theme of the book of Hebrews. It's a, re- a thread that runs from start to finish. And over and over and over, time after time after time, it points us to see Jesus. Before the new covenant, it was calling people to look forward to him. Now, on this side, looking back in history, it's calling us to look back to Jesus, but keep our eyes on him. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's old covenant promises and mediator of a new and better covenant of which we eagerly await its final consummation. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's old covenant promises and mediator of a new and better covenant of which we eagerly await its final consummation. Now, let's be clear. There's a way in which sometimes when we get talking about this, people that don't agree with our theology or, or, or doctrinal perspectives or even maybe, maybe you've heard this term as people talk about the covenants being the central view, that that's replacement theology. Oh, God, these people just think God has replaced Israel, that he doesn't care about Israel. No, it's not really replacement theology because Jesus didn't just come to replace these old covenants. He came to fulfill them. He came to finish them. He came to bring them to their end. He's not replacing anything. He's bringing fulfillment to them. And in the same act of his sinless life, his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, not only is he fulfilling these covenant promises, but he's also inaugurating the new. He's bringing them to the end that God always intended to bring them so that he can then initiate the new work that God intends to do do in order to to complete the rest of the promises that he's made in Scripture. And again, you can see this all over this passage. You can see this all over the book of Hebrews. You can see it all over the Scripture. So in the spirit of this book and, and, and the way in which this author draws from, let me just, let me just show you that, that over half of it, well, probably half of this chapter is a reference to, to Jeremiah. You flip through the book of Hebrews and about every other every other. Um, page, you've got reference to scripture after scripture after scripture pointing back to Jesus as some fulfillment of some Old Testament word. 
So in that spirit, let's look and see how Jesus fulfills these Old Testament, Old Covenant promises so that he becomes the man who makes them obsolete because he's fulfilled them and inaugurated and initiated a new and better covenant. First, let's think about all the way back to the beginning. Jesus is the promised son or seed. He is the promised son or seed. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3.15. Genesis chapter 3.15. I don't know if I said that right. Man, the, the Adam and Eve have sinned. God has entered the garden, and rather than immediately carry out judgment, he begins to pronounce that, that curse, pronounce that judgment, and speaking to the serpent, he tells the serpent, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. Oh, you'll strike its heel. He's going to crush your head. When they heard that, immediately, immediately they understood, we're not dying today. We've got an offspring. We've got a seed. We've got one that's going to be born. There's some life is going to come from us. Immediately. And we see that in Adam's response. We dealt with that back when we studied Genesis. We won't go into it deeply. But immediately they understood it, and they knew it was a son, because the way God referenced it was they were expecting a son. And they looked for it in, in their children, Cain, Abel. And then eventually Seth. And over and over, though Seth was the line, none of them were that promised son or seed. Fast forward all the way to the book of Luke, Matthew. Jesus is born of a virgin. Hmm, That's interesting. How does that happen? You need a man's seed. Except when God intervenes and puts that baby inside of her. Now the seed of the woman. He faces off with the serpent over and over. We watched it. We talked about it back on Easter, right? So he goes into the wilderness. He faces off against the enemy. And he stands where Adam caved. He stands. And over and over and over again through the New Testament, or through those gospel accounts, we see Jesus squaring off against Satan and demons, casting them out, them identifying him as the Son. They knew who he was. They had no doubt of who he was. And they knew he had authority over them repeatedly we see and then the point of his crucifixion when it appears that all is lost it's all just a part of God's plan you'll strike his heel but he's going to crush your head so Jesus is the promised son the seed he's the seed of the woman he's Abraham's offspring you go back to Genesis 12 7 13 16 17 8 God promises over and over to Abraham hey you're going to have an offspring right and then he promises Things for the offspring. And there's so many places which it's clear he's speaking about multiple people. But Paul, drawing on this later, looks back into the Old Testament and he says, Galatians 3.16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to the one, and to your offspring. Who is Christ? This idea of the seed, it's, it's, it's running all the way through Scripture, even to the point, this, this idea of seed or son coming from someone and being a, a, a promise, coming out of one who God enters into covenant. Next, we see it come to David. 
You can go back and look at the promises of God. We studied it. 2 Samuel 7, 12 is the verse. You can go look at it. Somehow, even after David's death, God is going to establish one from his line. It's no surprise that when Jesus is born, they are expecting a Davidic king, right? They're expecting one because that's the promise God had made. And it's no surprise then that Matthew and Luke both help us see how that line from Jesus back goes back at least to David. Luke goes even further. He's not just David's son, he's Abraham's son. Brings him all the way back to Adam, the son of God. He is the promise. And David understood this. Somehow David understood this, what, what, what revelation he had, I don't know. But as he's writing the Psalms, it becomes clear that, that he understands this. Psalm 110.1, David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Jesus draws on this in, in Matthew 22 when he's challenged by the Pharisees. He's like, hey, if it's his son, how, why is he calling him Lord? How can he be his Lord and his son? And he's challenging him because they're asking, oh, whose son is the Christ? And Jesus is saying, mm, he's God's. He's trying to make a point. Peter drew on it when preaching the gospel message in Acts 2. You know, so, so the Holy Spirit falls on them and, and the crowd say, oh, the, the, these people are drunk. And Peter says, no, they're not drunk. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. God's been telling you this is coming. And he draws on it in Acts chapter 2 where, where he points out that this is what David said. David, you know, we can go to his grave. We can see where he's buried. He even said this, pointing to Jesus. That's Peter's point. And he turns around and says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Even here in our passage, as it opens in Hebrews 8, we, we, we read language that immediately, ah, oh man, draws out the idea of a priesthood, right? The point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. Oh, he's a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Oh, wait. He's royal. He's a king. He is this seed that's been promised to David. So Jesus has fulfilled all of these promises, the promise that God made to the woman, all the way back in Genesis 3, 15, there's Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled the promise to Abraham. Here's your offspring in which all nations are going to be blessed, which are going to own the land forever. David, I'm going to establish an eternal son with an eternal kingdom. Here's Jesus. Jesus is the, the promised son or seed. Also, Jesus is the substance of the old covenant shadows. Look back at Hebrews 8.5. So he starts out, he points us to the high priest, and he points us to their work of offering sacrifices and, and serving under the law. And what does he say in verse 5? They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And then what he shows us throughout the time is that what Jesus is doing is more real. It's the substance. It's the thing that those things were pointing to. The, the, these priests and the law were placeholders, if you will. They, they had a vital role in the Old Covenant. We don't want to diminish that in any way. Please don't hear me say that these weren't vital, important, holy works of God. They were steps, though, in a pro process 
they were truly lesser covenants to the better covenant. They were symbols. They were shadows. So somehow Christ and his work, the new covenant, is casting its shadow all the way back into the Old Testament and to God's work among his people there so that through those things they were preparing us to see and know their fulfillment, Jesus Christ. They were always pointing to us and his superior role and his superior covenant. Jesus is the substance of old covenant shadows. Paul uses this imagery in, in Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. He's writing to these Colossian, these Christians in Colossae who are struggling with, with people who are, who are saying, oh, you've got to obey these rules, you've got to do these things, you've got to follow this stuff. He's like, wait a minute. That's not who you belong to. Those things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. His shadow, his role, the, the, the thing that he would do, the covenant that he would establish, that he would inaugurate, that shadow was being cast back in the old covenant so that we would be ready for it when he came. He is the substance of the old covenant shadows. Jesus is the hope the prophets proclaimed. It's striking to me as I read this that there's so many, there's so many things that when we walk through the book of Hebrews, we, we did that a couple of summers ago, and we came to this passage. There's so many things to talk about in this passage. The, the, the one thing that I think, it, well, not the one thing, there's plenty that escaped me, but one thing that stood out to me this time that's so clear is just how Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophetic hope, that prophetic promise. Right? I mean, you look at it. Who does, he, who, who does this author of Hebrews immediately point to when he begins to talk about the inauguration of this new covenant? Not some, not, not, not some new guy that's on the scene that's got some great thing to say. He points all the way back to Jeremiah, six, seven hundred years earlier. This is what God's been promising. And you can see it over and over in the prophets. They had so much judgment. They had so many proclamations of judgment because Israel was so jacked. And let's not pretend that we're not. They had so much judgment to offer. But over and over and over, there's sprinklings of hope. Hope like the, 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 the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel that come to life at the preaching of the word. The suffering servant in Isaiah 53, 5. But, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Gosh, that's hope. If there's any hope, there's hope. The sign of Jonah, right? Well, nobody reads Jonah thinking, oh man, that's pointing to Jesus. Until Jesus says, hey, that was pointing to me. Matthew 12, 40. Again, people arguing with him. Wanting a sign, hey, you got to do a little more. You know, all these blind people that are seeing and these deaf people that are hearing and these lame people that are walking, not quite enough. Give us a sign. This food we've eaten, just not enough. He's like, oh, wicked generation asked for a sign. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart 
of the earth. This is the sign you get. And that should be enough. Even in a book like Jonah, there's hope for us today. Clear prophetic judgment, prophecies of judgment, and it came. But hope, and Jesus is the central figure of that hope over and over and over and over again. He is the hope of the prophets. Jesus is the hope the prophets proclaim. Sorry, Jesus is also... This is going to maybe push on some of you, and I'm okay with that. He is the true Israel. There is no longer a covenant that stands for the nation of Israel. It is obsolete. It is growing old and vanishing away. And it may not be completely gone. That's to be debated. But I think in his life, his death, and his resurrection, he finished it. And he made it no, of no use. He ended it. And he established his new covenant. And he is now the true, true Israel. I think that's exactly what he meant when he's teaching in John 15. And he says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, it's so easy to read that and think simply of the church and think simply of us as individuals living here today that, oh, I just want to bear fruit because I don't want to get cut off and I don't want to be thrown into a fire. But what we miss, if we're not careful to recognize the function of the covenants and the imagery that's portrayed is that Israel repeatedly in the, in, in the prophets and in, and in the Psalms is referred to as God's vine. And when he says to them, I am the true vine, they know exactly what he means. I am what you never actually could be. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I've listed a whole bunch. If you, you, if you use you version, I've listed lots of passages there. We're not, we don't have time to walk through them all. Psalm 80, 9 through 16, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, Jeremiah 2, 21, Ezekiel 15, 1 through 8, uh, and 17, 1 through 21, Ezekiel 19, 10 through 14, Hosea 10, 1 through 2. And, and mostly these point to Israel's rebelliousness against God. But Jesus is the true find. D.A. Carson notes that he's the one to whom Israel pointed. He's the copy. They are the, they are the shadow. They are the copy. And he's the fulfillment. They are, he is the substance. The, the one to whom Israel pointed. The one that brings forth good fruit. And the one who supersedes Israel as the very locus of the people of God. And that becomes especially clear in places like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. We're going to deal with the people of God, the, the people of the new covenant, and like the new covenant people next week. So we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to highlight how Jesus is the true Israel, and it's in him that any Israel, any, anyone can be Israel. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what was called the circumcision was made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth 
of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So here we are, we're, we're, we're alienated, strangers to the covenants of promise, the promises that God was making and going to fulfill in Christ, having no hope without God in the world. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. The thing that Israel stood on before, he has torn down. So how does Israel stay Israel? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. Oh, making peace. Even Israel, even Hebrew people, Israelites, are only the true Israel if they are in Christ. This is what God has shown us time and time and time again through the scripture. These covenants of promise that we've been brought near now to this, in this new covenant. And, and we are standing right alongside Hebrew people and, and not Hebrew people. Slave and free. Male and female. White and black. In Christ. Descendants of Abraham. That's Galatians 3. All of us are only going to be Israel if we are in Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's old covenant promises and mediator of a new covenant and a better covenant of which we eagerly await its final consummation. Listen, I'm not trying to suggest that everything is done. If this is all there is, <laughs> I don't want to sound ungrateful. This doesn't seem like a fulfillment of promises of an eternal place face to face with a God who knows us and we know him. No, no, he inaugurated, he initiated this work and now we wait for the consummation of this work. But we don't look to the other covenants. We don't look back to David and say, God's got something to do for David. No, God did it. We don't look back to Moses and say, God's got something to do for them. No, he did it. God's got to fulfill some promise to Abraham. No, he's done it. That's why we always look to Jesus. That's why he's the center of everything. He was what the Bible was preparing us for in the Old Testament. It's what the Bible is revealing to us into the New Testament. And we're called to believe and trust in completely as members of this new covenant. He is the fulfillment. There is no other way. As we wait for him to finish all that he is going to do. As he's gone off to prepare a place for us. In whom we will live in that land forever. As he's gone off to, to, to prepare things for the final judgment and victory. What that looks like, I don't know. I, I, I have no, un, no understanding of what's happening in that heavenly realm. But God's been at work since he first said, let there be light to bring that to be. And it's always been planned to be done through Jesus. So why does it matter? So what? Why do I care? I mean, I'm just a New Testament Christian. I don't really need to know about all this stuff. 
Yeah, I guess that's true. But we're a people prone to drift. We're a people prone to put our identity or long for something and try to to gain something from something that or someone that will never produce it. I think the author of Hebrews actually dealt with this issue as well. He's writing in Hebrews 12. He calls them to run the race, to endure. He talks to them about the reasons that they suffer. It's not because God's ignoring them, but because he's treating them as a father treats his children. He's disciplining them. Calls them to lift their heads, straighten their weak knees. And in Hebrews 12, 28, or 12, 18, he says... For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Are you already recognizing what we're talking about? A mountain where God settled on it and spoke, and they were like, Ooh. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's not the mountain we've come to. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is why. There's nothing left on that mountain. There's nothing left on that mountain of fear and trembling. There's a, only the mountain of Zion has anything to offer us. In the context of the passage uh, in, in Hebrews, the author calls out the, these people to, hey, make sure nobody misses out on God's grace. Abstain from sexual immorality. And what is sexual immorality at its core? Isn't it acting on a desire, a longing for something that God has said isn't acceptable? I mean, consider it. Whether it's homo, mono, hetero, if it's outside of a marriage, how, but we long for it. It's not hurting anybody. It must be okay. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth. So get away from sexual morality. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to challenge us. Don't give in to those desires, those, those sexual longings. But he also points to unholiness, and he uses Esau as the example. You remember what Esau did? Hey, I'm hungry. Can I have that bowl of stew? Well, you can have that bowl of stew if you give me your birthright. Let's think about that trade. Everything as the firstborn son that he was due, he's willing to give away for a bowl of stew that's going to last about two minutes. And then within 24 hours, it's not even in his body anymore. I'm not trying to be gross. Just think about that. Absolutely nothing in contrast to everything. That's unholiness. 
But I was driving yesterday, man, and I was thinking about this, and it kicked me right in the gut. I hear that in myself all the time. I'm going to say this as gently as possible, but I hear it in you too. I hear it in us as a church. A level of dissatisfaction with how things are in our lives as people. If I only had this blank, this, this, this circumstance, this relationship, this job, this amount of time, this amount of money, if I only had this. So we get up and we start pursuing it and giving our lives to it. And we set aside the things of the Lord. I don't have time to pray because I'm so busy chasing this thing I think I need. I don't have time to read the Bible because I'm so busy chasing this thing I think I need. I don't have time for you because I'm chasing this thing I think I need. And in our church, if we only had this ministry this is going to hit home and I'm not intending just to single anybody out necessarily but these are the examples that I've heard and I just want to be clear because I don't think it's only the people that have brought me to them that have said them I think these are conversations that are happening if our youth just had this I want our youth to have that but are we there yet if our kids only had this, I want our kids to have that too. But are we there yet? If we only had more people, better people, you know, the kind that actually do what we want them to do and measure up to our own standards. Better people, more money, better building, better location, better, 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 better. There's nothing better than the new covenant that Christ has inaugurated and initiated and one day will fulfill. That's it. How arrogant is, uh, is are we not like Esau in some way? Give me my stew and I'll give up my birthright. Does that not sound like Israel walking in the desert? Nah, I don't like this bread. Give me something else. I'd rather have meat than bread. Hey, I'm thirsty. When are we getting a drink? When are, we, are, are we there yet? I, I'm not suggesting, please don't misunderstand. I don't think all these things are bad or in and of themselves wrong. But as we long for these other things, are we unintentionally, possibly even diminishing and disregarding the great thing that we all have? Your children, every week, are not brought to a show. They are told about Jesus. Our youth may not be the biggest, flashiest youth group, but every week they are challenged to know Jesus. Is there anything better that we could do than tell them about the one in whom they can live forever? 
our building leaks, and I don't know how we're going to fix all the problems, but gosh, it's ugly. I mean, I drive up to it, I think, oh man, it looks like a bunker. I get teased, it's a bunker. But outside these doors, there are people who don't know Jesus, and who I, at least I, and I know others in this room, get to interact with on a regular basis. I was here with them on Thursday night. I don't talk about this stuff much because I don't want to walk around trying to be flashy and showy, but I'm, I've sought to work diligently to develop a relationship with these people. And every time we're together, every time we're together, I point them to Christ. I invite them into church, and I have conversations with them, and I'm told over and over, and, oh, we're, we're threaten, we threaten each other all the time we're going to come to church. How long do you preach? Well, our pastor, she only goes 45 or 12 minutes. <laughs> well, I go a little longer. I know that these things, that the things that we can long for are good things. But when's the last time we, we, we weren't complaining about something we didn't have and we just stopped and said, thank you for what we do? Right? This is as bad as it will ever be for you and me. We have glory waiting for us because Jesus fulfilled all of those promises. And when he did, he inaugurated a new covenant. And then he sat down at the right hand of majesty and he is waiting for the command of his father, go get him. And when that command comes, we won't be here a second longer than we need to be. Or that his plan and his purpose is waiting to be fulfilled in. He will go. And he will come. And he will return. And he will take us to be with him in a land that is forever. Maybe, 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 just maybe, I want to encourage you this week, next week, and the week after that. And maybe all year. And maybe from now to the day you die. The next time you say, if we just had. Stop and say, God, I'm thankful I have this. Now that's to a bunch of Christian people. But I'm not foolish enough to think that there's not some potentially non-Christian people sitting in the room. The solution isn't really different. It's just different timing. I'm talking to people that have come to Christ and are trusting in Christ and need to grow up in Christ. If you don't know him and have never trusted him, start today. Place your faith in him. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And then run that race, looking, eagerly expecting the day he comes and consummates all those promises. Let's pray.